Well, welcome. It's so great to have you with us on this Easter Sunday. We've been doing a series in the season of Lent, the season that leads us up to Easter, that we've been focusing on money. And we've kind of uh, facetiously called it the root of all kinds of good. And we've been looking at uh, what it means to be obedient to God with our money as we try to follow after him, as we try to be disciples and followers of Jesus. But I wonder if, um, if you've ever had feelings of shame wrapped up with money. Like, maybe, maybe you have early memories of your parents arguing about money, about money, and you hearing that, you felt like somehow that was your fault. Or maybe you, um, maybe you covered the leather patches on your jeans, on the holes in your jeans, because you knew that the kids would make fun of you, but you couldn't afford to buy new ones. Or you hid the fact that you had secondhand sports equipment and hammy clothes until you were a teenager. Or you drove your grandpa's old boat of a purple car as a young adult because you needed a car for work, but you didn't have the money. Or maybe you needed to ask for that payment plan at the dentist. Or you only filled your gas tank with the cash you had in your wallet because you were worried that your card might be declined. Or that you skipped social outings with friends because you didn't have the money. Maybe those aren't any of your experiences at all, but they're some of mine. And when I stopped this week to think about how the intersection of shame and money has played a role in my life, I was overwhelmed with the amount of examples I could think of. Shame just doesn't come with a lack of money, though, does it? It can also manifest itself in abundance. The shame of being born into money is a real thing. The accusations of not earning your money can bring shame. The reality that you have abundance in a world that is so apparent in need can conjure deep feelings of shame in people. Or the manner in which you made your money might bring about these same feelings of shame. Even the truly comfortable middle class has feelings of shame that come along with money because, of course, being average in our culture, not exceptional in any way, actually has feelings of shame that come with it, as sad as that is. And maybe you hear all of these examples and you think, it's nothing. That's, that's nothing. Wait till you hear mine. More likely, you're sitting there, and you're thinking, I hope no one ever hears my stories of shame and money. That's what shame does. Shame loves the secret. It thrives on that silence 
that hiddenness. Shame loves to devour the lies. It casts a shadow so much larger than it is in judgment. It matters very little what is grounded in some kind of reality. Because shame will spin its own story. And as you know, as it spins, it grows. And it snowballs and it grows. And it's more hidden and we repress it deeper. And we don't want to talk about it more. And it's more secret and it grows. And it grows and it grows. Until shame consumes us. This morning I want to use the window of Easter. That us and the empty grave as a way back to the start of this series on money. In the first week of this series, week one of Lent, we suggested that money was, was sort of the last taboo in our culture. Everything else, anything else can be talked about. Everything else is on the table. No qualms about that. But money, if we get to money, well, that's the one that, no, don't go there, right? That's the one that we're not willing to discuss. Everything else is fair game. And now in this final week of the series, we're going to return to this idea. And I'm going to suggest that one of the primary reasons for those feelings, that taboo, that out-of-boundness of money, is this reality of shame in our lives. We also started the series with a reflection on Judas' reaction to Jesus. Jesus' friend Mary, you'll remember, uh, opened this expensive jar of perfume. This is the first scripture we read in, in the entire series. She, she poured it out on Jesus' feet. A year's worth of wages, and she dried it with her very own hair. And Judas reacts to this, this radical gift. Shouldn't that money have gone to the poor? That seems logical enough, right? We talked about his heart. And the reality that that was a front. That Judas simply could not accept this radical gift of generosity that Mary had anointed Jesus. And the text tells us in the Gospel of John she had anointed him for his burial to prepare him for death. So this morning, we stand on the other side. We stand on the other side of that instrument of torture, on the other side of that tomb of Joseph where he was laid, wrapped, dead as dead. We stand on the side of the resurrection, raised to life. Shame, money, Judas. It seems to me that there's a Bible story that talks about all of these things. Let's turn to Matthew 27. Starting at the first verse, it says this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. This is the day after Jesus, Judas had betrayed him with that kiss in the garden. And the leaders bound him. And they led him away. And they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, 
He repented. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, and he said, I sinned by betraying innocent blood, but they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the silver pieces on the floor of the temple, he departed. And he went, and he hanged himself. Everything gets cleaned up on Sunday morning, right? I mean, it, it gets wrapped up into a tidy Easter bow, doesn't it? All the messiness, all the confusion, all the, the pain and the hate and the heartache and the guilt, everything wrong with Friday gets resolved on Sunday, doesn't it? What about Judas? Does Judas tell us anything about this Easter Sunday? How do we deal with the one who betrayed so concerned with money throughout his whole life that it ruled his heart. He was, after all, the treasurer of that ragtag group of followers of Jesus. When he comes to his end, his self-appointed end, the remnants of his fortune are spilled onto the floor of that house of worship. And perhaps the most troubling part of this story is that the Scripture tells us that, that Judas repents he, he wants to make it right. He knows that he's guilty of betrayal. He seeks redemption. He seeks justification. He wants to be made innocent again. But the shame, the shame of his betrayal, it's too much. It's insurmountable for him. And he takes his own life. It was not the guilt of what he did. It was the shame that he could not overcome. What is shame? It's a strange thing, isn't it? We talk about honor and shame cultures, as if that isn't our culture, by the way. It is. Christian researcher, writer, speaker, author, Guru Brene Brown has, has a succinct and helpful definition of what shame is. She says this. She says, uh, guilt is the reality that I, I made a mistake. Guilt is, is based on my behavior. I have done wrong. Shame. Shame is the feeling that I am. It doesn't have to do with behavior, with being, with us as persons, with us as children of God. Shame says, who do you think you are? You're never going to be good enough. You know how much I love stats? Shame. It's mentioned 350 times in the Bible. 350 times. Now, if you, if you have no bearing of, is that a lot? Is that not a lot? 
You know how many times guilt is mentioned in Scripture? Less than half of that. About 140. 350 times in the Old and New Testament, the Bible talks about shame. In fact, we're introduced to shame in, in the first story of the Bible, aren't we? That first couple, Adam and Eve, after the creation of the world, they're in the garden, they're enjoying the presence of God, they're enjoying each other, all the fruits, all the animals, they're living together in peace and harmony, and the text says, and they were naked, <laughs> but they felt no shame. But then things change, and they partake from that fruit of the tree, the one thing that God has asked them not to do. He has forbidden them to eat of that fruit. And again, Scripture tells us that when they, when they eat, when they partake in that fruit, their eyes are open, what? To the reality that they're naked. So what do they do? They hide. Right? They fashion clothes out of fig leaves to cover themselves. That is such a universal reaction of shame, isn't it? When my two-year-old, who I will not name because she's in here, does something wrong, before we can even address what she's done, we just say her name and she does this. Right? Cover, hide. We know that feeling. We not do that physically ourselves, but we know that, in fact, it often is manifest in our physical reality. When we struggle to make eye contact, when our shoulders hunch over, when we avert the look of anyone that goes by, when we refuse to go out and see people, Feelings of shame grow and grow and snowball within us. God's act of grace in that first story. It's a strange one, I'll admit. He finds them, of course, he's God. They're not going to hide from him forever. He says, what were you doing? And they said, we, we were naked, we were ashamed, so we hid. And God knows that for their benefit, they need to leave that garden. The act of grace is actually the expulsion. We think of that as some sort of judgment for what they did. But it's the grace that God says, you have to leave my presence. And as they leave, he fashions together a tunic, it says, or a covering from animal skin. The grace that God clothes them in the skins, the bloody skins of animals. Hiding, secrecy, silence, judgment. These are the things that shame feeds on. Shame grows and it multiplies when the conditions are right. When we bury it deep, when we refuse to talk about it, when we put on that perfect face and pretend that everything's just fine, I'm doing okay. And then we think that somehow our shame is different. Oh, you, 
You don't have shame like I have shame. I have news for you. It's not. You see, the devil has told each and every one of us the same thing. Lane, you're worthless. Lane, you're a failure. Lane, you're a mess. You're a fool. You're an embarrassment. And here's what the devil is banking on. He's banking on us burying that feeling so deep that we never realize that we're all experiencing the same feeling of shame. Oh, but if, if you knew how I can't control my child, if you knew the shame that my child brought on me, if you knew the shame of my failed marriage, if you knew the, the abuse that my parents heaped on me, if you knew my struggles just to keep any job, if you knew about my hidden addiction, if you knew how much better my sibling was than I was. And it goes on and on and on. And I hate to tell you, friends, but you aren't special in this way. You aren't. One of the things I really appreciate about Brene Brown's work is insistence that guilt is a good thing. Not something we hear a lot in our culture, is it? Guilt is a good thing, just like our physical and sensations of pain to our brain to alert us that something is wrong here, right? We may not like physical pain, but it is trying to tell us something that will save us. So too is the feelings of guilt. Guilt is what our soul does when we have stepped out of line in the way that God has expected us to act. When we have broken relationships between us and God, when we have broken relationships between each other, when we have broken relationships internally. But shame. Shame, whether it's, whether it's created from the self-loathing inner voice, whether it's created from the voices external to us, from spouses, from siblings, from friends, from parents, from preachers. Shame has no constructive existence in the story of the good news of Jesus. I want you to listen to how the writer of Hebrews talks about shame in reference to the Easter message. He says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We often quote that verse, don't we? It's a wonderful verse. A lot of you know it off by heart. Listen to this last part again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Another literal translation here says, despising the shame of the cross. You see, friends, Jesus doesn't avoid shame. In humble obedience, he accepts the shame of the cross, and it was shame. 
He was publicly arrested. He was humiliated. He was spit on. He was mocked. He was tortured. He was tried on trumped up false charges. He was paraded through the city naked, carrying his own cross. A cross that when he was lifted up, said above him mockingly, King of the Jews. It was an instrument of pain, yes, but it was an instrument of shame even more so. He accepted it. He despised it. Don't get me wrong. He despised it. But he went through. He embraced it for our sake. For the sake, as Hebrews says, of the joy that came after it as he sat down at the right hand of his Father. See, Jesus took on not just his own shame, But on that cross, he bore your shame and my shame, too. And the thing is, he took that shame and he replaced it with dignity, with glory, with honor, with joy. And on Sunday morning, when that body wasn't there, and all they found was that shroud of shame folded neatly, Because he was clothed in glory. In his shame, he dealt with our shame once and for all. All things have been covered up through the shame of the cross. Things we've hidden, our deepest secrets, the love that people have told us that we've come to believe about it ourselves. Now tossed aside in a heap. Burial clothes, not to be worn again. For we await that same clothing in glory. So often we view the cross in that dichotomy of of guilt and innocence. And of course, that is so important to what we talk about, our sins being forgiven. But what about through, through the lens of dignity and shame? Or shame and honor, shame and glory. And it's not about living shamelessly. Followers of Jesus living shamelessly disregards the truth of our guilt. But living unashamed, I think, is a little bit different. Living unashamed because of the cross and the empty tomb, our sins are not only forgiven, but we have been raised up in dignity. The cross and the empty tomb have covered our shame so that we can live unashamed for the gospel. I told the the staff this week that I was preaching on shame. We had this great lunchtime discussion about shame and issues of shame. Nothing like meeting with your coworkers for lunch to talk about shame stories. But I had to laugh because I told them that I really didn't want my sermon to kind of slip into a Stuart Smalley sketch from Saturday Night Live, to which they all stared blankly at me. So I had to show them the clip of Stuart Smalley always looking in the mirror. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Right? And then after, I wondered if I should feel shame for how much Saturday Night Live I've watched. But you see, the answer to shame in the Christian faith is not self-esteem. 
Let me say it again. The answer to shame in the Christian faith is not self-esteem. The answer to shame is the shame and the glory of the cross. You see, I'm not up here this morning looking to throw you an attaboy. Good job. Pat you on the back. We're all fine. It's good. Pretending that that guilt, that brokenness isn't real, isn't helping anyone. Any gospel that doesn't address the brokenness, the utter brokenness of our world, the brokenness that, that Kelly Carter preached about here at Good Friday, the brokenness within me, but the brokenness of a world where a pastor can run over his young daughter, where someone can walk into a worship service and execute point blank one of the elders, both happening in sister churches of ours. Any gospel that can't look at that and call it for what it is, utter brokenness, it's not a gospel I'm interested in. It's an illusion. It asks you to, to pretend. Cover our eyes and just pretend everything's okay. It's not. It's not okay. I'm not okay. I need something far more revolutionary than that. I need, I need total transformation. I need a God that will meet me where I'm at. But a God that won't leave me where I'm at. God that will make all things new. I need to be revived by the Spirit. I need to be raised from the ashes of despair with Christ in union with the one who has been raised from the dead. The one who raised, was raised on Easter Sunday knows our shame because he has been there. And he is offering us a gracious covering himself. You see, our hearts are sealed. Dignity can be restored because he has made us worthy. And so you are a child of God. And 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 your shame cannot stop that. That is a deeper reality than any place you can push your shame down deep. Your shame has been put to death. It has been nailed on a cross. Christ has borne your guilt, yes, but your shame too. And when he has wiped it clean, he has picked you up. He has clothed you in righteousness. Whereas once Adam and Eve were clothed with those bloody animal skins, now we are clothed with the blood of Jesus Christ. I promised you some practical steps in this series. So if shame, whether money-related or otherwise, is consuming you, don't feed it. Shame loves silence. So name it. And name it often. 
Don't let it sink below the surface. Don't let it go unnoticed. Recognize that feeling of shame and name it. And it loves secrecy. Oh, it loves secrecy. So tell somebody about it. Find a counselor that you can confide in. Talk to one of the pastoral staff here. Find a close friend that you trust. And tell them about it. And it loves judgment. So proclaim the power of the cross and the empty grave over it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The power of secret, hidden shame has been broken when Jesus endured the cross and the grave, the shame for our sake. So friends, don't forfeit that victory that Christ has already secured. Shame loves to tell you that you're a mistake. And so remind it daily of 1 John 3. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously because it has no idea who He is or what He's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are. Children of God. And that's only the beginning, he says. Who knows where we'll end up. What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see Him, and in seeing Him, we'll become like Him. Oh, what a glorious day. All of us who look forward to His coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. That is the life of discipleship. And this is the message of hope at Easter. This is the invitation to follow after Jesus that we call discipleship. You see, friends, the question is not, do you believe it? It's not about believing in something, remember? It's about believing it. The question is, will you receive the one in his shame, overcame shame, so that you have become a child of God? He's waiting. He's waiting with that royal robe. He's waiting for us to throw off that shroud of death, that shroud of shame, and as Romans says, to put on Christ himself, the King. So, it's your move. I'm going to invite Corey and Krista up to share before our offering time. Good morning, church. So, money, um, it uh, plays a big role in all of our lives for sure. Um, this is an exciting kind of to uh, topic for me because my changed view of money has been an instrumental and pivotal part of my Christian walk. When I was young, I had two completely different realities of money. Um, my parents were divorced when I was young, and I was raised by my mom. And on school holidays, I would go and stay at my dad's in the Okanagan. Um, he was doing well for himself, so we got, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, we got to go on holidays. We had 
Um, big fancy house in the lake and a boat and we water skied and all that stuff. We would always go home with uh, new clothes, new shoes, and a great suntan because we were outside all the time. Um, I was always told if I wanted to have money like dad, there was a lot of sacrifices I'd have to make in life. Didn't really know what that meant at the time uh, because I was young. This was a fantasy world to me because my daily reality was very different. Um, my sister and I were raised by my mom with a bunch of help from the Free family. Thank you. And uh, now raising two kids of my own, and, or, sorry. Um, my mom raising two kids and working more than full time is certainly a job not for the faint of heart. Um, Raising two kids of my own with my amazing wife is no picnic either. It's, uh, it's a hard job, and uh, to all the single moms out there, whew, I don't know how you do it, but uh, bless you. So, um, my point is that money was very important in both of my realities for very different reasons. One, because there was a lot of money and there was a lot of talk of making much more of it. And the other reality, money was very important because there was seldom enough of it, despite mom's determination and the fact that she's one of the hardest working people I've ever met to this day. There's a large portion of my early adult life that I was not making good choices in life and entered a dark season with many, many bad choices. Then I was in, introduced to Jesus again in my early 30s. And that was the start of something special for me, the beginning of my current reality. Krista and I moved back to Calgary as a very fresh Christians. Um, we had moved out to the Okanagan for a, a short time. And we knew finding a church was super important so that we could make connections and have a support system. The very first time I walked into Oak Park and sat down, the sermon series at that time was on money. And uh, I was literally fresh, just dipping my toe into the, uh, into the Christianity pool. And um, barely a fan, really new to faith. And as a result, I was a long way away from being willing to voluntarily just hand over money that I worked my butt off for. I had way too many things to worry about in my life to start thinking about something as crazy as that. Looking back, looking back at that time, I, I visualized that it's a very barren time. It was a fruitless time in my life. I was in a rut. I hadn't added anything over to Jesus yet. When I look back, I envision walking through the desert, lugging all my baggage, a suitcase full of resentment in, in one hand and one of shame in the other. Under my arms, bag of unforgiveness, one of vanity, dragging a trunk full of pride that's harnessed to a yoke around my neck. I wasn't ready to give up control. I also envision Jesus idling beside me as I lug all my baggage through life, 
and he's in an empty beat train flat deck semi truck leaning out the window saying hey man anytime you're ready to give that stuff over I got lots of room I'm like no 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 I'm good I'm good I got this meanwhile the series back at the church the series on money was happening and I, I came for all three weeks I was leading a perfectly selfish existence for 34 years and had no idea at the time what those three weeks would do to my heart. First sermon changed my entire perspective of what my role is in this Christian walk and as a child of God. The whole scope of this thing is huge. This Christianity thing is huge. And it gave me a big picture, perspective of what God thinks matters. For me, it was groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. I learned that to God, we are not Calgarians or Albertans. We're earthlings. And children of God, the Bible says, we are to feed the hungry and tend the sick. I learned that this Christianity thing is much, much, much bigger than my immediate reality. I was asked, what footprint do you want to leave on the world? Hmm. Do you think that moms and dads in impoverished nations love their children any less than we do? Whew. Can you imagine what it would be like to hold your child in your lap and watch them starve to death and you can do nothing? Talk about hopeless. I thought about that all week. These people are the ones who talk to God all the time, these people in poor countries, because he's all they got, and we kind of lose touch of that. And one dollar of my, one dollar a day out of my wallet would change that family's reality, and that was convicting to me. The next week I went back to church again, and I learned that if I live in a house and drive a car, I was in the top 3% of the richest people on the planet. That means no matter how bad I think my life is, there's 97% of people that have got it worse than I do. I thought about that all the next week. Then comes the kicker. Knowing these things and looking at the state of the world, you think God would like us to try to help. With all our abundance, such small sacrifice, why wouldn't we? We can make such a big difference. 90% of our current lifestyle is a fantasy world to most of the people on the planet. I left there and thought about that all week. You know, I'm not saying 10% is a magic number. The Bible just says sacrificial giving, but um, it's a start. So I leave after the third week and thought about this for a few more weeks, all the same all the time, still struggling with the idea of letting Jesus get close to me. I'm not letting my guard down. I keep thinking about the series and it's burned a hole in my heart and I'm still lugging around my baggage. I know I need to make a move towards Jesus and I'm sitting on the fence about everything and I hear the word from the church in the back of my head saying, you're an earthling, you're an earthling. Plus I have Jesus idling beside me in the trucks Hanging out the way saying, hey man, just put the stuff in the truck and let's get on with it. So I finally threw up my hands and said to myself, fine, I'll do it. I will turn all of my baggage over to you, including my wallet. 
That ended up being the most life-changing decision in my world so far. It was like flicking a switch. Not only did I get relieved of my baggage I was carrying over time, which I still sometimes pull off the back of the truck and try on, but um, when I decided to trust Jesus and get in that truck, I got a front row seat to my journey through life. My new reality beside Jesus. Surrendering what had been my focus for 34 years was a giant leap of faith towards God and the most freeing thing that had ever happened to me. That move told Jesus, yes, I trust you with everything. But what it also did is it took all of the power money had in my life away. Through this process, I learned that if I give away if I give money away, I take its power back. And the hold it has had on my life all these years. Things have never been the same since. The blessings literally poured into my life and our life. I married my wonderful wife, who's the most amazing human being I've ever known, and was blessed with two amazing kids and a happy family. At least, I think we're happy. Are we happy? I think we're doing okay. A business I started, built, and sold within 18 months allowed us to buy our house. And we've been so blessed by this church and all the people in it. My experience with money is simply this. God blesses our lives with 100% of the opportunities that we need to earn 100% of the money that we bring in. So it's all his. Then he lets us keep 90%. What a deal. I can tell you from experience that it's not a very big adjustment to tighten the bootstrings by 10 points. And if you do it all the time, you don't even hardly miss it after a while. There are a lot of other spin-off benefits too. I know for myself, if I'm being obedient to God, when I am investing in our church, I am investing in God's kingdom. I immediately felt like I belonged here. I became far more interested in the health of my church I became more invested in the relationships that are forged here. I automatically wanted to help out more often through service because I want to see the causes that we support succeed. Roots were planted in Christian community and personal relationships flourish. I think the biggest payoff is seeing the difference in the world that the church I belong to and contribute to makes and knowing that through obedience, I can legitimately feel like I had a part in helping God's work in the world. Years ago, Heart for Home was little more than an idea in Pastor Rico's head. And today there is property, buildings, and a church that bring hope to hundreds every week. And our church did that because our people are awesome, genuine loving people who want to make a difference in the world and love God enough to pull it off. It is not easy at first to write the check to God and give him his part. So, when I was struggling to do that early on, there's always, there's always circumstances and a voice in your head that'll say, oh, I can't afford it, I can't afford it. I always ask myself, do you think that God, the creator of the universe, the moon, the stars, the earth, and everything on it, including me, do you think that the one who knows everything just might be able to do better and bless my life with 90% of the income than I could do with 100% of it? 
Uh, easy, no-brainer. I'm very happy to report that money has never meant less to me than it does now. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm still out there trying to make as much of it as I can because it's, it's a necessity. But uh, the motivation behind it has drastically changed. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Well, I don't have a lot to say following that because I thought that was pretty amazing. But um, my story of money is a little bit different. I didn't really even think about money until uh, my parents told us we're bankrupt and we're moving from the mountains of BC to a prairie city. And my response was a tearful, well, if I can't take my horse with me, I'm not going. <laughs> Needless to say, that was... Uh, quite a life change, but um, that's when money became kind of on my radar, and I think I was raised with, um, in an atmosphere of, of want, you know, there was, there was not enough, and, and there was a sense of fear, and there was, um, it was a struggle. Um, I brought my money skills into adulthood, and uh, Corey was blessed with uh, a fiancé who was abysmal with money. I was literally terrible with money, and it was a really good thing that I didn't have control of it in the beginning. <laughs> uh, even though I wanted control of it, because, dude, you're supposed to protect me and trust me, right? Even if I hide things from you. Um, so yeah, it's been quite a journey. It's, uh, it's, it's been uh, an interesting conversation over the years with money. Um, as far as tithing is concerned, I was really glad that Corey was tithing on behalf of our family because I don't think I would have, honestly. Um, I didn't want to let go. And uh, partly because, well, I just wasn't being obedient. And I knew I wasn't able to be obedient at that time, so I was happy to let him do it. But over time, gradually... My money attitude has changed. I've considered things that I want to purchase quite a bit more. Ask myself, is this purchase going to be good stewardship of what God has given us? And then uh, not long ago, <laughs> we, we decided to give me an actual salary from our business. I was getting some money before, but... I actually have a real-life salary now. So Corey had said to me, you should tithe. Now that you're, you're making money, you should tithe. What? <laughs> you're tithing for the family. It would be weird if we each gave a separate check, wouldn't it? Right? But uh, God was whispering in my ear. He was working on my heart. He knew that it would be good for me to tithe. And so now I actually write a check every Sunday and put it in the collection. It's not been going on for a long time. Actually, just since the start of this series. <laughs> but um, I don't know what the result of this is going to be. If it's, I just know that God, God wants this. And um, I know he's going to work this into something beautiful somewhere for someone. And I know it's changing me. 
Um, okay. So many of you know that um, Tabitha came to live with us in December. And we put the shout out to all of you, hey, she's going to be moving into her own place. And this is what she needs. And you guys did what you always do. You just opened your hearts and your, your arms and you let go of all your stuff and you blessed her so much. And this is why I love you guys. <laughs> we have an amazing family here. And I just, I know that wherever Tabitha's at, with how she feels about God, you guys have forever changed how she perceives Christian people. And you have showered her with such love and generosity with your stuff. And for some of you with your money. And through it all, God was honored and God was seen. And you guys were the hands and feet of Jesus for her and for us. And this has been a really beautiful experience. So I just want to say thank you. And I just, I treasure you all. I treasure this family. That's it. I'm done. Corey, uh, Corey said, you know, we might get emotional up front. And I said, well, that'll be three of us on the stage then. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we can't comprehend how you have blessed us. We just know that deep inside of us, you have called us to give. That you have invited us into this relationship where we get to partner with you to bless the world. We thank you for that privilege. We ask, as we always do, that the money that is given to this church will be used in a responsible manner that will bring glory, not shame, to your kingdom. Amen.